I really think we need to show just how bad some of the politics are that are being built into AI systems in terms of how they're classifying people. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. These days, as nationwide protests are endeavoring to push back a system of brutal, over-aggressive law enforcement, one of the movement's most powerful weapons is the ubiquitous smartphone with its ubiquitous camera. This was the tool that captured the murder of George Floyd, that captured the murder of Eric Garner, and that has captured the deadly force wielded against black men and women by the police for too long. But there's a catch. The same technology that allows witnesses to expose oppression is far more often used by governments and conglomerates as a means of oppression, as a mode of surveillance devised to keep masses of people in check with implications that make Orwell's 1984 seem quaint. One person who has been investigating the world of high-tech surveillance and its implications for a biased carceral state is Trevor Paglin, a world-renowned geographer turned artist who has employed exceptional daring-do to visualize modes of control and turn them into artworks that can be displayed in blue-chip galleries like Pace and Metro Pictures. As someone who came to art through prison reform activism, Paglin has also made searing work about the way that the most advanced forms of surveillance, artificial intelligence-enabled facial recognition, actually imports old racist biases into the digital realm. Here is an interview with Trevor recorded in the days before the protests over George Floyd's death shook the world. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Trevor. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it. So I always like to start with the same question in these strange pandemic days, because the answer is always pretty surprising. So where are you right now? <laughs> yeah, no, it is it is a good question. I am currently in Woodstock, New York, and I've been going back and forth between Woodstock and my studio in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. To, to dive in here, if, if you look back over your CV to date, it reads less like your typical artist career and more like the plot from a Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> or actually, maybe the entire Mission Impossible franchise. <laughs> <laughs> to kind of list a few highlights, you have infiltrated prisons, you've mm-hmm. investigated Area 51, you've mm-hmm. spied on the NSA, you've worked with a famous whistleblower, you've yeah. scuba dived for your undersea cables, <laughs> you even launched artworks into outer space, yeah. which I don't think we're going to have time to get into uh-huh. in this episode. But now you're doing some very provocative work to unmask the operations of artificial intelligence and computer yeah. vision, which we're definitely going to talk about. Yeah. So before you started working with this kind of underworld of, of government secrecy and black ops, you actually grew up on a string of military bases yourself. So yeah. you were moving around with your father, an Air Force eye doctor. Yeah. What, what was it that first made you start to become interested in making art? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing because I've just, honestly, I've made art my whole life for as long as I can remember. I don't think that there was any particular moment where I decided oh, I'm going to be an artist now. It was just always something that came naturally to me and just something that I was always doing without even thinking twice about it. So eventually you do what a lot of budding artists do 
and you went to art school at the prestigious Art Institute of Chicago. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, you did something that not so many artists do, which is that you went to Berkeley to earn a PhD in geography. Yeah, it was it was a weird move, but I'm really glad I did it at that time. And still now, I was thinking a lot about, you know, art that is very empirically grounded, right? So not not the kind of art that you go into your studio every day and you kind of make some work of genius, but art that emerges from a really serious encounter, for lack of a better word, I guess with the outside world. So going out and looking at things and trying to learn how to see things. And at that time, when I was in art school, there was a there was a trope that, that was something like, oh, the artist as anthropologist or the artist as sociologist. And there's this kind of tradition in, in, in some branches of art making where artists adopt tools or methodologies from other disciplines and kind of artify it. And I guess for me, I didn't want the research that I did as an artist to be like second best. Like I, if I was going to be doing research and the artwork that I was doing, I wanted that research to be as good as anybody could do, that it should be legible to people at the highest levels who'd studied the things that I was looking at. And I found a really amazing guy at UC Berkeley, a guy named Alan Pred, who was a geographer. And he was really interested in Walter Benjamin in in particular and thinking about how do you do scholarship in ways that involve formal experimentation and thinking about the aesthetics of scholarship, which is really rare. That's really not something that is typically discussed in academia. And so I just bought a plane ticket and flew out there and and talked to him about what I wanted to do. And it was basically like, you know, I've been waiting for someone like you to show up. So we proceeded to have just an amazing collaboration. I was, when I was in graduate school, I was just pinching myself constantly that, that the state would pay me to do that. At some point, you, um, you coined a term that actually made its way into the scientific community, which mm-hmm. was experimental geography. Yeah. Can you explain yeah. what that is? Yeah. So when I was doing social science, I was always really appalled by the degree to which discussions of form and content don't even exist. For the most part, it is assumed that you're going to write in a particular style and you're going to publish those writings in particular kinds of journals and what have you. And I think coming from the arts background, you're just, it just is in your blood that form and content are the same thing. So I was, with experimental geography, I was trying to take some ideas from art in terms of how we think about form and content and import that into scholarship. And I was proposing that there was all kinds of ways that you could think about what the product, for lack of a better word, would be in the social sciences that the form that social science could take is much, much wider than what I saw people doing. And the the ironic thing, though, is that I think ultimately the experimental geography thesis being much more useful to artists than, than academics, but it was originally aimed at, you know, social scientists. Well, quickly after you graduated with your PhD, you started to do geography in about the same way that Indiana Jones does <laughs> archaeology, <laughs> which is you started driving out into the Nevada desert to take pictures of these top secret military bases located there. 
but also more specifically the experimental drones that they were piloting in the skies above. What was it that made you so interested in drones? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a, a kind of a longer story. I think the arc of it goes back to the 1990s. And in the 1990s, I was doing a lot of work around prisons and I was working as a kind of anti-prison activist and thinking a lot about like the geography of prisons, for lack of a better word. And then what happened was obviously 9-11. And shortly after 9-11, it became really clear that there was a kind of global secret war that was taking place. You know, there's the war in Afghanistan, but there was this much broader kind of war on terror, you know, as they called it. And it turned out the signature institution of that was a prison at Guantanamo Bay, right? And so there was, a, um, in addition to Guantanamo Bay, the CIA had a network of what they call black sites, which were secret prisons around the world. And I was doing a lot of work investigating that, you know, was really trying to find out where are these places, who's being held at them, and, and some really nuts and bolts information about these black sites. But at the same time, I was thinking about what are all of the things that have to come together to make a space disappear? Say you're a state and you want to build like a secret place. How do you do that? There's all kinds of things that go into creating spaces or creating institutions. And what, is it, what does it look like when that's all secret? And so in order to answer that question, you start looking historically. You say, okay, well, what is the history of secret places in the U.S. in particular. So you go back to the Second World War and the Manhattan Project. There's some things that are before that, but a lot of this really gets formalized then. And so if you want to look at the origins of something like the NSA's uh, mass surveillance projects or CIA black sites, you find things like, like Area 51, for example. Area 51 is a real secret base that's existed since the late 1950s. And... So it's almost like you're doing these this archaeological investigation. Now, the way that this turns into drones is at that time I was looking at people who were being kidnapped and being tortured, people who are being disappeared by the government. And there was a moment where I was working with my collaborator, A.C. Thompson, who works for ProPublica now, doing a lot of work around white nationalism and white supremacy. And we, we thought, you know, why is the CIA bothering to run around the world and and capture these guys and create this network of secret prisons. You know, if I just put on my Darth Vader helmet, imagine what I would do. Why wouldn't I just like assassinate these guys? Um, and it turns out that that's exactly what started happening. And so the rendition program morphed into the, the drone program. And that drone program was headquartered in Nevada. You know, so all the drones in the world, no matter where they are, are flown by remote control and often from one particular base in the middle of Nevada. <laughs> and so I was just driving out to the desert and photographing the skies. And because they're also flying drones there locally, you shoot the large format camera and you develop the film. And then it looks like there's little bugs <laughs> all over the film, but it's drones. It's funny when I was when I was first making those images, the guys uh, at the printer kept retouching <laughs> all the drones out because they just thought it was crap on the film. I was like, no, 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 those are, those are the points of these images, you know. So at some point, you transitioned from making visible these 
arms of, of surveillance and remote assassination. And you started to work more specifically with information mm-hmm. and in particular the NSA. Mm-hmm. How did you start to approach working with, with this incredibly secretive organization? Yeah. So I had at that point written a couple of books about military secrecy and, and obviously done a lot of artwork and a lot of geography work on this topic. And I had along the way become friends with um, Laura Poitras, a filmmaker. I mean, to make a really long story short, when Edward Snowden approached Laura, she asked a group of people that she trusted to try to take part in this project of, of understanding these NSA documents and thinking about how do you make images that that somehow build out this world. You know, when, when you look at a lot of the NSA documents or the Snowden documents, it's a lot. A lot of things that seem very abstract, you know, talking about things like internet cables and internet exchanges and data centers and what have you. It's a kind of infrastructure that is not really obvious. You, you have to train yourself to learn how to look at it. And I did a little bit of cinematography for the film Citizen Four. And in, in parallel to that, I was just going out and trying to make images or learn how to see some of the the landscapes, for, for lack of a better word, that were being described in the Snowden documents. So it, it's an interesting project to work on in that way. And then I think when you're looking at something like NSA and you're looking at what is essentially a a planetary surveillance, you know, a politics of surveillance is also as well as a planetary infrastructure to do that. Um, at some point, you take a step back and you say like, okay, well, yeah, we're, we have this NSA thing, but there's these way bigger planetary surveillance infrastructures called Google and Amazon and Facebook, you know, and, you know, they're not doing exactly the same things that an NSA would be doing with that information. But in terms of it, touching more people's everyday lives in significant ways, you, you could argue very easily that mass surveillance on the, on the corporate side has a far greater impact on a far greater number of people you know, globally. And that's what kind of led me to this work on AI and computer vision and that sort of thing. You've called the advent of computer vision, quote, more significant than the invention of photography. Yeah. So how did you get more. that idea and why? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess as somebody who is just obsessed with images and obsessed with visuality and the question of what is it that we think we're doing when we're using our eyeballs and what is it that we think we're doing when we're making images and when we're interpreting images. The reason why I describe the advent of AI and computer vision is a more important moment in the history of images than the invention of photography or the invention of perspective it has to do with mediation. And it has to do with the fact that historically images really only existed when people looked at them, right? You needed a human to interpret an image in order for the image to exist in one way or another. That, that images are a relation between the image and the viewer. And those relations are very squishy and they can 
change over time. You know, the meanings of images are constantly changing and constantly evolving. They mean different things to different people. So you take this very squishy world of images and and we arrive at a moment in history where we're going to build machines that look at those images for us. So now you take humans out of the loop. And so now what you have is the possibility of a visual culture where it's machines making images for other machines that does not require humans to be in those loops, right? And then those loops of vision. You also don't require humans to do the interpretive work of reading those images. Instead, you have the vision system hardwired into a technical system, and then you have that interpretive paradigm also hardwired into the computer vision system. So, of course, you know, computers can record images. Yeah. But how can they actually understand what they're seeing? Yeah. Okay. So there's there's a lot of different approaches to that. And I, I think about there's being two basic paradigms. One is what we might call classical computer vision, and one would be machine learning based computer vision. Again, these are just terms that I made up to make sense of (laughs) computer vision. In classical computer vision, you can do things like look for lines or look for complex shapes, look for circles or look for faces. You know, you can build vision systems that look for, for lack of a better word, kind of image primitives right? Circles, squares, kind of the shapes from which all more complex shapes are built out of. And you can do a lot of different things with that. You can use that for navigation and flight, for example. You can use that to figure out where's a horizon. You can use that to be part of a guided missile system. You can do some basic object recognition with that. Now, The machine learning way of doing that is pretty different. And that is based on what are called training images. And the way that you do object recognition or computer vision with machine learning is that you create huge databases of images and then you feed those to the machine learning algorithm and it will kind of quote unquote learn how to recognize the difference between that. So for example, if you wanted to build a an AI-based computer vision system to recognize things that are in your kitchen. You would create a database of, you know, forks and knives and plates and bananas and oranges. And then you would feed that to the computer vision system. You'd say, here's a thousand pictures of an orange. Here's a thousand pictures of a knife. Here's a thousand pictures of a fork. Here's a thousand pictures of a banana. And that AI would, quote unquote, learn how to distinguish between those two things, right? So technically what's going on under the hood is much more sophisticated than these um, classical approaches. So you did some experiments where you tapped into these databases to yeah. computer vision to to build these data sets yeah. that would create artworks. And and yeah. some of these artworks can be beautiful, but they can also be the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. One work in particular, I remember where where you trained an AI to identify dogs, and then you asked it to create a new dog of its right. own. And the result was so horrifyingly unnatural. <laughs> it's, it's literally, it's scarred in my memory. I can, I, I can mm. picture it and it's sending shows down my spine. It's like, like the sinister parallel universe has been, you know, opened up. Yeah. So I'm really, really fascinated with these training libraries. 
because I think just in the first instance of taking a picture of a banana and then saying, this is a picture of a banana, a lot of people with a, with a background in art just know just how slippery these things can get, you know. So when you build a training set, it adds up to a taxonomy, right? So you're saying, here's a range of images that I can make sense of. And by extension, you're creating a range of images of things that you cannot make sense of, right? And so I started building training sets that were just really weird, like in the sense that, I, you know, I think about the fact that images rarely mean what they depict, right? So if you think about something like an apple, you know, an apple, sure, you can have a picture of an apple, but apple means a lot of things to us. It can mean health, or it can mean knowledge, or it can mean sin, you know, I mean, we have all of these kinds of associations and those associations are not trivial. You know, they're very fundamental to the way that we see and the way that we make sense of things around us, you know, and especially the way that we make sense of images. And so what I started doing was building training sets that were much more allegorical. I, I made one based on Freud's interpretation of dreams. Like, okay, let's build an AI they can only see objects that are significant to Freudian psychoanalysis. Because obviously in psychoanalysis, what the meaning of an object is, you know, it's way over in left field just compared to, you know, what the literal meaning of the image is, right? And so I just, I think about this a lot, you know, the world of metaphor and the world of allegory that those of us with a background in art are so familiar with is just a really strong refutation of some of the basic premises of what is built into AI and what's built into computer vision. That this kind of art that you were making of generating new images through AI yeah. has kind of become the classic first stage of AI art. That's what the yeah. art group named Obvious yeah. uh, created as a work that sold in Christie's as the, the first <laughs> AI generated artwork to sell in a major auction house. Yeah. Pretty quickly after you were working on these experiments, you changed and you started to turn the camera instead back at the people who were making the data set. Yeah. 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 So the more that I worked with these trainings, the more and more I was looking into the kind of aesthetics of them, the styles of seeing built into them and the, the politics of classification hmm. that's built into them as well. And, and this stuff gets really tricky really quickly. So for example, a common application of a common computer vision system is look at pictures of people's faces and they want to build algorithms that just say, what gender are you? Are you a man or a woman? Right. And, and so right there, you have a problem. Like some of those of us coming from like a arts background or a, you know, think, who think about the relationship between vision and politics, we would say, well, wait a minute. First of all, why is gender have to be binary? In your system. And that's a reactionary way of thinking about gender, right? Mm. We also would say, who do you think you are taking somebody else's picture and trying to adjudicate what their gender is by looking at them rather than by asking them? And so the point that I'm making here is that you very quickly start to see how these AI systems are not just technical systems, but there's all kinds of politics, that are baked into them in terms of how the data is collected, how those interpretations are made, and what the politics of those taxonomies are. And so I became a 
artist fellow at a group at NYU called the um, AI Now Institute that studies the political implications of AI. And I worked with the director of that group, Kate Crawford. We did an exhibition with the Fondazione Prada in Milan that was just a real, like, pretty serious critique of the politics of classification in AI systems, particularly when it came to people. And in parallel to that, I'd done another project called ImageNet Roulette. And, and that that became you know, quite a phenomena. <laughs> and it's also very unconventional because it's not your typical artwork where you go into a gallery and you see something on the wall and you think about it. This was actually a participatory app mm-hmm. that people yeah. could download from the internet. How did it work? Like I mentioned before, there's all these standardized training sets that that are commonly used to teach AI systems. And the one that's maybe the biggest gold standard that's out in common use is called ImageNet, which is a database of images that was created at Stanford University. ImageNet is a collection of about 14 million images that are organized into about 22,000 categories. And the people who made it said that when they made this database, they wanted to map out the entire world of objects. And so what they did was they, they basically took you know, a thing that's kind of like a dictionary, a thing called WordNet. And they took all the nouns and so and they made this corpus of these nouns. And then they went out and used um, Amazon Turk workers on the internet, you know, people that do piecemeal labor on the internet, to associate images with those words. And a lot of it is, you know, different kinds of plants, different kinds of fruits, things like that. But of the 22,000 categories, there was about 2,500 of them that were kinds of people. Like there's categories of like scuba diver, a bunch of pictures of people scuba diving, you know, cheerleader, you know, a bunch of pictures of cheerleaders. And it goes on and on like this. But there's a lot of categories that were just really like racist and like really misogynistic and really like cruel. You know, there's categories like um, slattern, you know, slut, like literally. And then there'd be pictures of women inside this category. And then there'd be one like bad person. And then there's pictures of people that these researchers had labeled bad people. And then those images and those classifications are just kind of imported into AI systems. And so what I did is I took all of those people categories from ImageNet. And I trained an AI model of it and then built a web application where you could go online and you could upload a photo of yourself and that would tell you what kind of person you were according to this, you know, gold standard of training images in in AI. It gets really controversial really quickly. You know, I, I, I said on the website, look, this is very regularly going to produce misogynistic results, racist results, you know, misanthropic results. And I want, and I really think we need to show just how bad some of the politics are that are being built into AI systems in terms of how they're classifying people. And, and so it became this viral thing on, on Twitter and the internet. Um, it crashed. What ended up happening was that the people at Stanford came out and said that they were going to go back and revise that data set. And they said they were going to take out 600,000 images and delete a lot of the categories from that, from that data set in, in response. Um, I, I don't think that's going to work, but that, that's a more philosophical conversation. Here I should just 
point out as a devil's advocate to say that, you know, sure, there are, are biases and maybe the individual gets lost in the aggregate of um, some kind of larger data set. But facial recognition does enable mass automated surveillance and that can help solve crimes. And in fact, the Chinese government, which operates the most extensive surveillance apparatus in the world, has been using it to help yeah. fight the coronavirus epidemic yeah. uh, very successfully. Yeah. So yeah. Is, <laughs> is this kind of mass automated surveillance such a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. First of all, where is the power in any kind of system? Like who gets the power to look at who? You know, who gets the power to do what with that information, right? And I think you'll find in these kinds of facial recognition systems, the model is not a democratic one. There's one person who does the seeing and the recording and there's everybody else that gets recorded and surveilled. The second thing is you can think about if we go into this world of machine learning and AI and affect and, and identification, you get this whole world of classification and taxonomy and who has the right to judge somebody else based on the interpretation of an image. A third aspect to it is, yes, you can have mass surveillance and you can use that to make policing far more granular and far more efficient. You could very easily install facial recognition, enroll everybody's faces in centralized police databases and set up cameras on every street corner and take a picture of every single person who jaywalks. And every time you jaywalk, you automatically get a ticket mailed to you in the mail, right? Which happens in China. Yeah, exactly. That's what happens in China. Um, You can do the same thing for people's homes even. If you wanted to, you can track everybody's cell phone. You can track how many hours they're sleeping. And if they're not sleeping enough, you can make their health insurance rates go up. You can make their car insurance rates go up because you can assume that you know they're not as well rested as maybe they should be to go to work that next day. So there's all kinds of applications like this. And philosophically, I think about the fact that we need to understand anonymity as a kind of public resource, right? That there's also something that we gain as a society by not having the police be completely efficient. And we've always understood this. I mean, this is why you have things like warrants, right? I mean, think about something like, would there have been a civil rights movement if you could have perfect surveillance and perfect policing? You know, so we we can see the value of that on the other side. so th- there's that in the bigger question. Now, this the coronavirus situation is, is tricky because you're right that surveillance has historically been one of many tools that governments have been able to use to prevent the spread of pandemics or, or, or curb their growth. And it comes down to the question of, do you actually trust the Trump administration? <laughs> really, it does require either a totalitarian government or a society in which you really do trust the government to a much greater extent than I think this government you know, has earned. 
trust. You just said it requires a totalitarian government, but yeah. doesn't it, it create a totalitarian government? Yeah, it's like, exactly. It's a, it's a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Like that is the politics that's built into the technology itself, right? The historical analogy here or, or precedent is the panopticon. And that was, of yeah. course, that was a, a prison. In, indeed. And, and it's interesting. Um, the panopticon's origins are actually in earlier surveillance systems that were built for the plague. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. And at the same time, when you look at the history of political theory or what have you, plagues are often seen as a bonanza <laughs> for, you know, totalitarians. <laughs> because, well, that's the question. I mean, do how is the coronavirus accelerating this increasing move into surveillance? Yeah. So I, I think that's happening in a lot of different ways. First of all, there's this public health aspect to it, which... I think is a deeply flawed conversation. Obviously, there's a global emergency. And I think a lot of us really want to imagine that there's a technocratic solution to that, that we can just develop some app and this app will sort it all out for us. Well, guess what? That's not true. (laughs) And you got to think about what is the secondary and tertiary effects of creating those apps going to be? Who's going to have that data? What are they going to be able to do with it? So there's a whole series of questions about the public health aspects of it. There's a whole other series of questions that we can ask when we look at the communication technologies that we are using right now to do this podcast, that we're relying more and more on electronic communications to just live our lives and communicate with people, right? And the platforms that we're using are, first of all, in the business of surveillance. And secondly, as we do more and more work online and as more and more schools actually start transition to an online model, the surveillance tools to measure things like productivity, attention, affect, are going to be more and more built into the platforms that we're using. And this is going to happen in the work domains and education domains, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And not only will that data be used to evaluate students, and not only will it be based on very flawed assumptions, but that information will then be sold to third parties like insurance companies, um, healthcare providers to kind of create a complete biometric record. Earlier, I compared you to the uh, Mission Impossible movies and (laughs) Indiana Jones, but you're also a little bit like John Connor in The Terminator. (laughs) Trying to warn humanity about the rise of machines. But the, the difference is that instead of blowing things up, (laughs) Like, you know, you're fighting the robots by making gallery shows of contemporary art. (laughs) So why have you chosen to use art as your weapon, you know, in this battle, so to speak? Like, weirdly, art, I don't think, makes arguments. I I don't think you can go and look at an art show and say, like, okay, this this exhibition is about why surveillance is bad. Um, But what I think it can do is it can call your attention to things. It can teach people how to see. And we live in a world that is really complicated and we do not know how to see all of the things that are around us, that touch our lives. And so for me, making art and working with images is a way to learn how to see the moment in history that you find yourself living in and the 
mechanics and the politics that surround us and that, that define who we are to a large extent. So to me, it's, it's just it's endlessly interesting and endlessly rich. This has been really fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Yeah, stay safe out there. Yeah, you too. Stay safe uh, in there. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It'll help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.